Well, it is a joy to be with you all this evening. I do extend my greetings from First Baptist Mount Pleasant just down the road, and uh, it is a privilege to um, come and to open up God's Word tonight. I want to direct your attention to Psalm 32, and I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn there. And while you're turning, i uh, just give you a, a, brief, a brief bit of introduction. Um, I learned of Christ Church actually through a podcast, not your podcast. Um, I, did, I did not know of Christ Church, and I was listening to a podcast one day, and, and there was a gentleman on there, and I was quite encouraged by the things he said, and, and quite challenged and spurred on in the Lord. And as I got to the end of that podcast, it was your pastor, uh, John. And as he gave introduction and said where he was meeting with his church at Moultrie Middle School, I said, wait a second, that's like three blocks over from our church. And uh, I wanted to, to connect and, and get to know John. And so shortly after that, we met and um, have been friends since. And um, Hans is a classmate of my daughter, Anna, and uh, it has been just a joy to, to get to know John, and I, he's been a true encouragement to me and, and to uh, the work that God is doing in our church. And so I thank you um, for loving your pastor well. Continue to do so, he and his family, and um, I want to just do honor to the ministry that goes on here by looking directly to God's Word at this time. So with your Bibles open, you can follow along as I read aloud from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes that we might see the beauty of your word? Would you open our ears that we might hear the glorious nature of your truths? Would you bend our wills, O oh God, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ? It's in his name that I pray. Amen. How often do we say or do we enjoy hearing, bless you? Have a blessed day. 
this family is truly blessed. I've, I've gotten into the practice of when someone says, bless you, when I sneeze, I look at them and say, he truly has. But we say these statements casually and probably all too often without thinking about what it really means to be blessed. Even those who don't understand or know the blessing of the Lord use these sayings. But in this psalm, David gives us a true picture. He gives us great clarity of what it means to be blessed. And so as we look to this text this evening, we're going to begin by seeing the blessed union we have in Christ. We'll move on to the blessed communion that we have with God the Father through Christ the Son as we live lives of worship and glory to Him. And then we will conclude by looking at the blessed instruction that God gives His people. And so look with me at verses 1 and 2. As we begin, we see that in verse 1 it begins, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. But what does it truly mean to be blessed? How do we determine whether or not we are blessed? And how do we determine whether or not a situation has been blessed? Or if God has blessed us or it in a specific way? Well, David helps us by giving very descriptive language. Very clear teaching to help our minds be able to to grasp what is being taught here about the idea of blessedness. He uses words like transgression. Iniquity, covering, sin. And by using those words, he, he takes us deeper into this understanding of what the blessed life truly is. And so what does it mean to be one who has transgressions or transgressed would be the way to say it? Well, as we look to the original language of Hebrew, we see that that is a going away. It is a departing from a particular place or an idea here we see in Paul's teaching to the Romans that he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The idea that Paul is communicating here shows that through the sin of Adam, we have all gone away. We have all transgressed. From God. We have been born in a long line of transgressors. We inherit the sin of Adam. And so in our living, in our being, we are transgressors. But what David points out is that blessed is the one who's going away, who's turning from God, has been forgiven has been lifted off of him. This brings to mind, I'm sure for many of you, one of my favorite books I encourage our church to read annually is Pilgrim's Progress. This lifting off is a a picture that would draw our minds back to Bunyan's progress as he writes about Christian. He depicts Christian as carrying a burden on his back until he makes his way to the cross. It's at the cross that that Bunyan states, and I quote, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and was seen no more. Christian's burden was lifted. It was forgiven. It was taken from him. 
And so to you today, friends, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you're, you are truly blessed. Your transgressions, your turning away, your going away from God has been lifted from you. So much more so than Bunyan's story. This is the reality of everyone who by grace through faith comes to God through Christ. And so we could say, blessed is the one who has turned from God, but has been forgiven. His burden has been taken by Christ as if it were His own. Christ took your burden, your transgression, as if they were His. Now, David goes on, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Now, we all know that to sin is to fall short of the glory of God. We know Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what sin is. God created all of His creatures to do just that, to glorify Him. That's what we were designed for, to radiate His glory, to display His beauty. But in our sin, we're unable to do that. In our sin, we are incapable of glorifying God. We fall short of the mark, and even that statement falls short of the intensity of what it means to be in sin. This is an objective standard. There's nothing subjective about God's standard of glory. You're either righteous or you're not. You're either seen as righteous through Christ or you're not. You're either covered or you're not. Covered means just that. There's no nuance here. To to be covered, to have our sins covered, is to have it placed in such a way that it is not seen. But it carries a significant religious meaning. The Israelites would have understood the imagery here of the covering of our sin. You see, on the Day of Atonement, interestingly, the high priest took the blood from a sacrifice into the most holy place. Many of you know this scene quite well. There, it was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the lid or the covering of the Ark. Now here, the presence of God was believed to dwell between the the angel wings above the Ark of the Covenant. Is there the presence of God was? Now, Boyce states this, the blood placed upon the lid of the ark where the law of God was kept symbolized a covering, a covering of blood over the broken law in between the presence of God. It thus covered the broken law, shielding the sinner from God's judgment. What a beautiful picture. So we could say, Blessed is the one who has fallen short of the glory of God, but has been covered by the blood of Christ. You see, friends, the broken law has been covered. The judgment of God has been covered. You have been covered if you have trusted in Christ. Now, I love, as David moves on, he He says, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He's pointed out transgressions up to this point. Now he moves the the flow of thought to the iniquity of man. The corruption is really what he's speaking of here. 
Job responding to his friends who believed his hardship was due to his sin in Job 13, 23 says this, how many are my iniquities? How many are my corruptions and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. You see here, Job uses all three words that David uses in our text this evening. But here, David is pointing out that God does not count corruption against the blessed person. And so when you consider the meaning of blessed, what does it mean to be blessed? It means that God does not count your corruption, your turning away, your transgression against you. It's not imputed to you. It's been taken away. It's been lifted. This word imputed is an accounting term. In Romans 4, Paul explains that Abraham's blessing was not because he kept the law perfectly or, or rightly, but through the righteousness of his faith. Listen to what we read in Romans 4. Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But we go on to read that it was counted to him, not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ. And so this idea of imputation, this accounting term, this having been counted as righteous, not for what we've done, because remember, we're corrupt. We have transgressed. We have turned away. But for the work of God. And even if you look back in Paul's letter to the church at Rome in verses 7 and 8 in chapter 4, you will see that Paul is looking to Psalm 32. He's actually quoting Psalm 32 to show our sin was given to Christ and his righteousness was given to us. It's the beauty of the great exchange. It's the worst deal that's ever taken place in human history. Our sin given to Christ and Christ's righteousness given to us. Thankfully, that deal took place. But there was no equality there. Our sin separated us from God. But Christ's righteousness has allowed us to freely and to graciously come to his table, to be adopted into his family, to be welcomed in where we should have been cast out. And so we could say, blessed is the one whose corruption has been counted against Jesus. And his righteousness counted to us. This union can never be changed, can never be broken, can never be corrupted or abandoned. I grew up in a church where it was taught that it could be. Maybe some of you did as well. I was taught that you could lose your salvation based on your works, but by God's grace, he allowed me to see through his word and, and through the testimony of faithful saints like you that this was not the God of the Bible. This was not a temporary work that Jesus accomplished at the cross and in the tomb and now at the right hand of the Father. No, this is an eternal work. It is an effective work. It's a work that once applied to the heart and the life of the believer is unchanging. It's unbreakable. It's incorruptible. It cannot be abandoned. 
And so if your sin has been covered by the perfect blood of Christ, there is nothing that can ever make you unclean again. You are blessed. Now, David moves from the blessed union that we eternally have with God through Christ to the blessed communion we enjoy day to day. One way you could think about this, I've heard it said that one of these is a positional truth. Our union with God in Christ is a positional truth. It doesn't change. We are positionally seated in the heavens. But conditionally, day to day, we experience something different. Would you agree? Our union with God in Christ is secure, it's irreversible, it's eternal. But we would be foolish to miss that our communion, or maybe the word fellowship communicates this better, with God can change. Your condition can change, and we see it here in, in this text. It's, it's very clear in verses 3 and 4 that there was broken fellowship because of sin in David's life. David shares physical and spiritual effects from the sin that he was engaged in. You can look to Psalm 51. There's a, a lot of parallels between Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But the effects of David's sin being hidden were grave. I love, yeah, I'm, I'm a Baptist. You saw it in the name of the church, right? I told John I was going to preach on baptism. We decided that probably wouldn't be a good idea. And so uh, we're not going to do that. But I am going to quote Spurgeon, right? I can do that, okay? God does not permit his children to sin successfully. Think about that. God does not permit that your sin will go on with great success. You will feel the impact and the weight of your sinfulness. John Donne wrote, Sin is a serpent, and he that covers sin does but keep it warm, that it may sting the more fiercely and disperse the venom more effectively. You see, this is what sin does in our lives left unchecked. Now, in verse 3, listen to what David says. I mean, just very clearly from the text. My bones wasted away, groaning all the day. I find it interesting that in verse 3 he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. You can't groan silently. But he kept silent from his repentance. He wasn't confessing his sin. And in his silence of confessing, he was led to groan and to moan and to mourn the depths of his sin. My strength was dried up. Can you picture David in this point in his life? Wasted, groaning, and dried. Charles Simeon states that a soul under the dominion of sin could not be happy. And he makes a bold statement here. He says, even if it were in heaven, which we know it could never be, sin would eat its vitals as does a cancer. This is what sin does for us. The world tells us that sin will fulfill you. That sin will make you happy. That sin will lead to a freedom and an advancement in life that you could only dream of. Just tap into any social media or commercial feed. 
it's not the case. It eats us like a cancer. It leaves us dry. It leaves us withered and groaning. This shines light on or should help us understand 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, just a little bit. It's here where Paul points out that in the church at Corinth, there were some who were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and they were dying. They were becoming weak and ill. They were not dealing with their sin. Paul writes, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Their bones wasted away, they were groaning, their strength was dried up because of their sin. It's clear that those who have received the blessed union with God in Christ are not meant to remain silent. And so if I can encourage you this evening that the blessed life is not a silent life. It's not a polished life. It's a life of confession. It's a life of recognizing our sin. Some of the most mature Christians I know realize just how sinful they are. But all too often in the church, we try and button ourselves up and and look a particular way so that the world will think we are blessed when in fact we are dried up. We are dying. We are wasting away. And so for those of us who have received this blessed union that only comes from the finished work of Christ, it means that we now have the freedom to come and cry out in our vulnerable state, in our weak state. The the pastoral prayer each time you all gather is to, to display that, to show that it is not meant that we're to be strong people, but we're to be a dependent people. Yes, we will struggle with sin we have the ability to freely confess to God, knowing that in Christ we are forgiven. Notice that perfection is never implied here in what David says. But the attempt to hide one's sin from the omniscient gaze of God carries serious and immediate consequences. Now, David moves from physical to spiritual and mental effects in verse 4. David felt the heavy hand of God upon him. It was as if the one who had given Israel water in the wilderness had dried up to David. Now, David's silence was the opposite of his response in Psalm 51. You remember Psalm 51, verses 1 and 3? Have mercy on me, David cries out. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This should be the refrain of the heart of a believer. Forgive us our iniquities. Wash me thoroughly. My sins are ever before me. That's exactly where we all need to be. But David's silence in Psalm 32 was a sign of his prideful arrogance. You see, when we try and hide our sin, it destroys us. It breaks us down. You may not realize it today, church. But as you try and cover your sin, you're actually saying, I have more power than the covering that Christ has provided. But when we confess, we're taking away that idea that we could ever turn away from the love of God. 
And we're turning toward Him to His glorious embrace in Christ. So David moves from broken to restored fellowship. He moves from the union we have in Christ to to this silence that has led to to him being judged by God to now the restoration of fellowship in verses 5 through 7. David making it very clear that our communion with God is directly connected with our confession of sin. Have you ever gone through those seasons in your life when you just feel like God is far away? That you have not found delight in your reading of his word, you haven't found delight in gathering with his people. I would say more often than not in my own life, when that is the case, it's because I've been harboring sin. Rather than, in a healthy way, confessing my sin. But if we're there tonight, if you're there tonight, church, if you're experiencing that dry season in your spiritual life, let me tell you that your relationship and your fellowship, your your communion with God can be restored. Look at what David says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I acknowledged to you, O God. Does God need us to acknowledge to Him? Absolutely not. He's all-knowing. However, when we come to Him and we acknowledge to Him our sin, what we're doing is we're pointing out and saying, You are God, and I am not. Something very important is happening here in the heart of David. David, by acknowledging his sin, is resting He's abiding. He's doing what Jesus actually calls us to do. But here, David is resting in the work of God rather than his own efforts. Notice the difference between verse 1 and verse 5. Verse 1 says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And then verse 5, David cries out, I did not cover my iniquities, which means the inverse of that is, I tried to cover my iniquities, and it didn't work. I have, I have labored to hide from you, God. I have labored to, to keep my sin in the shadows. I've, I've labored to, to keep out of your view that which is not pleasing to you as if I can hide from an all-knowing God, from an eternal God. But here, he says, I'm not covering my iniquities. I'm not doing it any longer. I will confess. I will cry out. You see, when we try to hide our sin, we're not resting in the work of Christ. It truly is a denial of the gospel to hold tightly and try to hide our sin. I think sometimes we just need to to speak with the severity of what we're doing. Many times we say, oh, I messed up. Or I'm stumbling. I'm struggling. But friends, if I can caution you, There is no stumbling. There's no struggling. There is sin. And there is worship. And if we embrace sin, then we are denying worship of God and we are worshiping ourselves. I love what Paul writes in in Psalm 51, verse 12. He cries out to God and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, O God. You see, our salvation is secure. 
But the communal and the fellowshipping joy of our salvation ebbs and flows in our day-to-day lives. You see, as we confess sin, as we kill sin, as we deny the flesh, as we put on righteousness, as we walk in the forgiveness that Christ has purchased for us, this is where communion hinges. This is where fellowship flourishes. We cry out, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Help us hide not our iniquities from you, O God. Help us to see ourselves for who we are and help us to gaze upon you for who you are. Allow our sins to be known and allow your glory to be enjoyed. Verses 6 and 7, we see that David understood that when one is in fellowship with God, God's love should be shared with others. Look at how this this flows. Therefore, let everyone who is godly. No longer is David concerned about himself solely. Now he's speaking of you and me. He's speaking of everyone. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David cries out for the benefit of the people of God. Down through the generations. From generation to generation, let everyone, not some, but all who call upon the name of the Lord, experience the blessedness of His forgiveness. And then, this runs parallel to Psalm 51, verse 13. Where in Psalm 51, verse 13, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Look at what he says here. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when, they may, when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. David wants the people of God to understand that God allows, he even causes situations in our lives to draw us to him. The rushing of great waters will come, saints. They may be present in your life today. But... They will not reach those who take the law of God seriously, who take their relationships with God seriously. It's not that we will have perfect lives. It's not that we will not face difficulty and hardship. You know that we will. But in the midst of those, as Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, we can experience the peace and the mercy of God. It's when those loved ones pass away. It's when your children walk away from the faith and they deny Christ. It's when you don't get the job you want or the promotion you were hoping for. It's in those times as the waters rise that we call upon God to renew the joy of our salvation, that we might experience His mercy and His peace. He delights to give it to us. Look at the latter part of verse 7. He says, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God delights to keep and to preserve you in His grace. Have you ever thought about that deeply? That it is the delight of God to keep you and to preserve you. But we must come to Him. Repentance and belief as, as His children who are, who are settled under the blood of Christ, we continually 
come to him as we desire to fellowship and commune with him. And so we have blessed communion. We have union with God in Christ. We have blessed communion with God. Yes, it may fluctuate. Yes, it ebbs and it flows. So let me encourage you to be quick to repent. I preached the ordination service of a brother a few years ago, and that was my challenge to him. Be comfortable repenting. Become accustomed to repenting. Because when we don't, we become accustomed to many other things, and they are not glorifying to God. And so we have this blessed union, we have this blessed communion, and then we come to the conclusion of our text in verses 8 through 11, a blessed instruction. It's time for David to be quiet. It's time for God to speak. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. God promises to teach or guide his people in the way that they should go. He is the best guide you could ever ask for. I told our church one time, uh, my wife is a Spanish teacher, and we used to take students to Costa Rica on an educational tour. And this one particular trip, we were going into the rainforest one evening to take a nature walk. Let me just encourage you, don't ever do this. There are many mosquitoes. You think we have mosquito problems. They have mosquito problems. But this particular adventure, we were to see um, these uh, what are the, dart, the poison dart frogs. That sounds inviting right? And as we get ready, we meet our guide. He, he looks at us and he says, guys, now make sure you stay in the middle of the path. He didn't say stay on the path. He said stay on the middle of the path. That got my attention. I'm going to follow this guy. And so as we're walking, we just start. We're not even really to the trailhead yet. And I, I asked him, I said, why is it so important that we stay in the, the middle of the path? He said, well, the most venomous snake in Costa Rica lives right here in abundance. Now, I'm trying to figure out how to go back to the bus. But I trusted my guide. And so I reiterated to our students, listen to this man. I know nothing at this point. He knows everything. Let's follow him. And so we're walking along, and as we walk, he stops. And when he stops, we stop. And rightfully so, because he says, now look, I would have never seen this. And I can't remember the name of the snake. I'm trying the fertilance or something like that is over two feet off of the trail. Now you can imagine, I love high schoolers. I see many of you here, but you can imagine high schoolers walking on a trail casually. Do they stay on the trail? No, two feet off of the trail, that's fair game. And so had this man not given us the instruction as our guide that evening, it could have come to a very swift end for a student. You see, there was really no hope of getting help or the anti-venom that a student might need. And so as I've thought about that in, in this picture of, as, of God as my guide, how much more important is it for us to look to Him and to His Word and to his direction, as we walk this, this lonely pilgrimage through this life, through the, through the trails of this world, that we look to his word and we rely upon his spirit, that we might not fall into grave danger. 
In John, we see that the Helper has come. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, Jesus says, in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the Word of God, like the textured pavement on the side of the road, keeps us within the lane of his glory. See, it's God's Word and his Spirit have been given to guide us in his ways that we can know what he desires. We confess when we fall short, and we rest in His forgiveness. You see, friends, the instruction of God is a good thing. Now I'm preaching to the choir. You're here on a Sunday evening. You know that. But in Revelation 22, we see, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. And so let me say, may it be those people who keep His Word. May we be those people who keep His Word, not those who are described in verse 9, who are like horses and mules, who need to be bridled. But let us follow after Him. Let us embrace His perfect law, trusting that His steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Him, as David says in verse 10. The world is longing for perfect love. The world is longing for unconditional love. And here we see that for those who cry out to God in Christ, who confess their sins to Him, can experience the steadfast love of God. Sorrows surround the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who call upon His name. So friends, the one who trusts in the Lord, that's you. The one who confesses when they fall short, I pray that that is you. Be glad and rejoice because you are blessed. You see, you're not blessed because you live in Mount Pleasant or in the Charleston area. You're not blessed because of the jobs that you have and the beautiful families that you are growing. Those are all God's grace. But you are blessed because you are unified with the perfect and holy God through a perfect and glorious Savior by the work of a powerful and perfect Spirit. And so we come to the conclusion in verse 11. David declares that the blessed should respond to this good news. Now, I know for you all, I'm sure, I, I, this is actually the first church service I've been to at, at your church. But I've talked to John, and your church looks a lot like our church when you gather, and so shouting's not something you do a lot. We, we don't shout. We're not comfortable shouting in our services, but here we see David. He's declaring that we shout for joy. So being the Reformed Baptist that I am, I had to go and tease out what he meant by shout because surely it couldn't be that I'm shouting, Right? But to shout is simply to shout. But what does it mean when we shout? Well, we shout to let others know that we value what's going on in us or around us. Some of you were shouting a few weeks ago at sporting events. Some of you shout when your children do well in debate. You shout at any given opportunity. But here, 
there's a call for us to, to shout, not necessarily to, to cry out loudly, but to allow our lives to be a declaration of what is going on inside of us and around us. Because the, because the eternal God, the creator of the universe, the one who does what is good, right, and perfect at all times has considered us blessed. John Owen states that union with God is to be enjoyed greater than communion with any other person. And so church, as a pastor from another church, I'm thankful for the unity that we have in Christ. But do you know what? I'm more thankful for the unity that I have with Christ. And I'm thankful that you have that unity as well. Will you pray with me? Oh God, may we shout. May we give glory and honor to you and you alone. Because we are truly blessed. Come what may, we rest in the arms of the Almighty. We are hidden in the shadow of your wings. We rest in the mercy and the peace that you have provided. May you lead us to be quick to repent and ever satisfied with your grace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.